folks. Welcome back to another episode of Mostly Ghostly with myself, Matthew Fisher, and my co-host and gentleman extraordinaire, Mr. Ray Booten. <laughs> Hello. How you doing over there, Ray? Not bad. How about you? I'm doing all right. Um, on this episode, I figured maybe we should return back to some ghostly. You know what I mean? Um, so we, we're, we're being the, the fact that we're from good old Massachusetts. Um, we we're going to dip into some folklore from Massachusetts. Um, we're going to be talking about, uh, I think we're going to take a couple episodes to talk about different areas of Massachusetts and the hauntings that are within, you know, keep people, keep people, uh, at bay. We're still in, in the midst of this COVID-19 situation. So you, we got a lot of people quarantined at home. Uh, and instead of just hearing, you know, me ramble and race intelligent things, I figure we'll dip into some history of the haunts of Massachusetts. <laughs> so, with, with with that being said, you know, uh, the book of reference uh, for, for these segments is going to be the book Haunted Massachusetts by Sherry Reve. You know what I mean? But, um... We're going to jump right into it real quick. You ready, Ray? I'm ready. All right. The first place that they talk about is a thing called the blood, the Bloody Pit out of North, near North Adams. Are you familiar with this? Uh, no, I haven't heard that. Yeah, this was new to me. Um, it's a five-mile-long railroad tunnel through Hozak, H-O-O-S-A-C, mountain near North Adams. Uh, it's been called many things, including the Bloody Pit and the Tunnel from Hell. But its proper name is the Hoosac Tunnel. It was built in the 1850s through the 1870s to provide a direct, uh, tr- direct reel rather between Boston and Troy, New York. As with many early engineering feats of this magnitude, countless lives were lost during construction. And some estimates put the number on the uh, Hoosac Tunnel project as high as 200. Uh, two of the tunnel's victims died during an explosion when a man named Ringo Kelly detonated the blast prematurely, before the pier had to, had made a safe made it a safe spot. Uh, Kelly, though not officially accused of any crime, disappeared shortly after uh, a hearing on the disaster and wasn't seen for a full year. This, of course, caused even more speculation about the role he must have played in the tragedy. Had he skipped town, afraid of being found out, perhaps? To this day, nobody knows where he went that year. Um, Maybe on vacation, I'll add. But on the anniversary of the tragedy the following year, his body was found strangled to death in a hole in the tunnel. Now, my opinion of that, real quick, I'll jump in and say, that is probably a family or friend that strangled that man to death because they probably didn't appreciate him going on vacation after killing their loved ones. Okay. It, this all happened right in the very spot where two victims had lost their lives, presumably because of his careless handling of the explosives. Kelly's murderer was never found. Some say it was probably an angry relative to one of the victims, like I just said right there. But others believe it was a vengeful ghost of the two men. The slaying marked the beginning of paranormal incidents inside the tunnel. 
After Kelly's body was found, many laborers refused to return to the work in the tunnel, fearing that it was cursed, not to mention haunted by bitter ghosts. Now that's that's the difference, but you know, the opposite of sweet ghosts that like candy. So many men report. So many men reported hearing disembodied voices crying out in agony. That work on the tunnel nearly came to a screeching halt, prompting railroad officials to call in two investigators to squash the men's fear. It didn't help matters when the investigators heard the moans too. They finally concluded that it wasn't the wind, yet they hesitated to say what else it might have been. Another deadly explosion in 1873 looked, took the lives of an unlucky 13 laborers. Area citizens admitted to hearing cries near the pit. The laborers reported seeing phantom workers carrying their shovels towards the worksite, but leaving no footsteps in the snow. Apparitions ceased after the last body of the explosion was finally removed from the tunnel. At other times, people have heard cries and groans coming from deep within the mountain, and unexplained voices whispering excitedly. Ghost lanterns have been seen moving along the tunnel as if being carried by human hands, when in actuality nobody was there to carry them. Apparitions have been reported several, uh, reported several especially memorable ones being headless. One man reported being manhandled to the point of unconsciousness or alcohol by someone he never saw after he lured into the tunnel by strange voices. Another man fled from the tunnel in terror and was never seen again, though this, this, though his team of horses was found in the woods nearby. No wonder Hoosack Tunnel is said to be one of New England's most haunted places, but the property is owned by Contrail and is clearly posted, meaning no trespassing. The laborers who walked off the job during construction of the tunnel were on the right track, so to speak. They firmly believed the cursed tunnel was left was best left alone, considered it off-limits, just as the Indians did when they called the mountain through which it goes Hozak, meaning forbidden in the Mohawk language. What'd you think of that one? Uh, that sounds interesting. It's got a lot of potential there as to why it would be, <clears throat> excuse me, why it would be haunted. Mm-hmm. A lot of the yeah, d- people that weren't supposed to die that died uh, that di- died rather abruptly. Uh, the violent death there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. I think that some of it where where they did see people moving and they did see the they do see the lanterns moving a lot of that would have been would be considered residual energy Mm -hmm. uh, something that happens it just keeps on playing back again and again as to how valid the story is about someone being manhandled uh, or the other story that would lend itself more to an intelligent haunting because it's interacting with someone yeah. So it looks like you may have both types there. Yeah, I whenever I hear somebody being manhandled, I always think of alcohol being being at play. Oh, I agree. That that sounds just a little uh, suspicious. And like I like I said previously, I think that dude was strangled by somebody who uh, was familiar with who he, who exactly he was. Um, loved ones or some friends or family especially after he went on like it wasn't creepy that he went he disappeared for a year because that kind of makes sense and when he returned 
Um, whoever, yeah, loved ones aren't going to like the fact that you're, you're running away from your problems that caused my, my family or friend to die. And now you're back strutting your stuff like you're king shit. And you didn't get in, in trouble for it. So my, my assumption is somebody hooked him up with a strangulation, <laughs> if you ask me. Um, but yeah. Have you ever heard of the Who's Zach Tunnel? Are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. And about the guy being strangled, mm-hmm. not to say that a revenge killing doesn't happen today. They do. Yeah. But something of that nature would have uh, probably been more likely or easier to pull off in the mid to late 1800s yeah. than it would be now. And people would probably uh, take a look at the situation and kind of turn away, figuring, well, you know, uh, he was responsible for these people dying. I'm not saying anything who it might be. Right. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move into the next story from the western part of Massachusetts. This one's called The Legend of Bosch Bish Falls. Have you ever heard of Bosch Bish Falls? Never. Neither have I. Hopefully these are real stories and not somebody just writing, making making shit up. All right. Long, white man's used, so I'm going to blame the author, not me. I don't see color. I'm, I'm, I'm an equal opportunist. Long before white man settled on the Atlantic coast of America, a beautiful Mohican woman named Bosch Bish was accused of adultery and sentenced to death by drowning. Despite her claims of innocence, Bosch Bish was tied to a canoe to be released at the top of Massachusetts' highest waterfall in the town of Allender. Uh, on Mount Washington, where she would presumably plunge to her death below. The Indians, including Boshbish infant daughter, White Swan, gathered sadly at the appointed hour. But seconds before they, they commenced their grim task, a fine sunlit mist formed and surrounded the accused woman. At the same moment, a ring of dazzling butterflies encircled her head. Was it a message from a great spirit? or a work of a demon, while the other Mohe- uh, other Mohicans stood transfixed by the scene, Bosch Bish took the opportunity to break away, running to the edge of the falls and leaping bravely over into the pool of water below, thus sailing her own fate. The mystical butterflies sp- spiraled gracefully down behind her. Her body disappeared into the water below the falls and was never recovered. The Indians, rather than believe that they witnessed a divine intervention, thought that the only witch would avoid punishment using the black magic Bash Bish had surely employed, nonetheless, they embraced her innocent baby as one of the tribe, raising White Swan new adulthood. Years later, White Swan, now a lovely young woman, was distraught over not being able to bear a child for her husband. The tribal chief's son... Though her husband was kind and loving and their marriage was solid, he was required by tradition to take a second wife who would give him and her an heir. Devastated, White Swan journeyed to the top of Bash Bish Falls daily, desperately seeking solace from her mother's spirit. Her husband tried to confront, com, conf, ugh, tried to comfort her as best he could, bring her various gifts from nature, but her despondency grew. One night, White Swan had a dream, and it was Bash Bish, seeking a reunion with her only child. She told her daughter to join her, and because White Swan had been taught by 
her people that dreams should be regarded as prophecy, she took it very seriously and awaited further direction from the spirit. One night at dusk, just as White Swan's husband approached her at the top of the falls with his latest gift, a rare white butterfly, she heard her mother's ethereal voice saying, It is time, White Swan. The young woman never saw the look of horror on her husband's face as she leaped over the falls. So mesmerized was she by the voice of her mother, her husband dropped the butterfly and grabbed for White Swan. But he wasn't quick enough. She was gone, and the white butterfly fluttered down the 80-foot falls behind her. He plunged after her, hoping to somehow save her, but his selfless act led to his own death. His body was found in the pool beneath the falls the next day, while Swan's body, like her mother's, was never recovered. Some say the soft, unearthly voice of women have been heard near the falls in Bashbish State Forest. Perhaps Bashbish trying to summon another wounded soul to join her beneath the falls. Several people have seen the falling water take on the shape of a woman, believed to be Bashbish or White Swan, and still others have been smiling, uh, seen a smiling female face as they look down into the crystalline pool of water below the falls. What do you ta- what's your take on that one? Um, I'm wondering who documented the story, where to me it would be number one. Yeah. Um, native stories were oral, mm-hmm. passed down uh, that way. So I would be curious as to who was documenting it. I think it was and... Michael. It was Michael Moore. I think. That's a joke. <laughs> <He didn't... laughs> yeah, but. He... If you could see my face, it would have went, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that one. That one, yeah, I'm with you on that. All, all the Native American stuff, there really isn't. Even though they do tell their, 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 they tell their tales for, for, for forever, right? That's what they're all about, oh, yeah. storytelling. It's, it's the storytelling. Quite often in many of the stories, um, they used to teach lessons. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I'd be curious as to who put it down and if it was someone who was not native, how much there might have been some embellishing. Mm-hmm. Truth. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I felt like I've heard this story in uh, multiple times with different characters. It seems like one of those almost universal type, you know, Native American ghost stories. That, that's what I'm, I'm getting a bit of that feeling too. Yeah. Um, I don't, I've got my doubts about it. It's kind of a little too clean, a little bit too romantic, and a little bit too white, so to speak. Yeah. Very white. It's wearing a... Never mind. Okay. <laughs> uh, next story. The Phantom Canoe of Ponsucket Lake. Are you familiar with Ponsucket Lake at all? Uh, nope. It's in Pittsfield. It is often referred to as the crown jewel of the Berkshires for breathtaking beauty and serenity. But many years ago, it was called the Sean Keek Moon Keek by the Mohegan Indians. It's hard to imagine the tragic event that tainted its pristine image and created the poignant, reason, poignant reasoning behind its original namesake. Moon Keek was an Indian maiden whose father was the chief. The chief's brother had a son named Sean Keek, 
Mooncake and Shanky grew up together and eventually realized that their love went far beyond that of first cousins. Now I'll stop right there for a second. Um, Native Americans, uh, I know that you, you, you spent some time with some Native American folks. Do they look down on crossbreeding the way that, um, you know, regular folks would? Or Caucasian white men would? Um, I would say no. Not that I've encountered. That they're more open to it or they're, they're, they're not so? I would say more open to it. Okay. Um, actually, right now, unless you go out west to a reservation, you're not going to meet somebody who's full blood. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there was a time with the settlers, the idea of uh, the natives coming and taking the settlers' women, mm-hmm. and they would be brought into the tribe. And quite often, if the white man went to rescue them, they didn't want to be rescued. Because hmm. the whole structure there is the woman had property, the woman had a say, had the cl- the uh, clan mothers, etc. And they, they went kind of like, oh, wait a minute, I want to go back to that other stuff. But if there was a problem with um, the so-called crossbreeding, then they would not have captured, whether male or female, yeah. someone from a different race and brought them into a tribe. Uh, myself, uh, there was a Massachusetts tribe. Myself and family were adopted by that tribe and given names. Uh, we didn't marry into it, but historically in the past, um, I don't know of any problems that would have existed. Hmm. Okay. Um, the young lovers came up with a plan that they would permit their union. They would meet on an island in Pontusic. Lake and travel to a tribe in the Northeast that would be more agreeable to their living together as a husband and wife. They decided if they, if someone tried to stop them, they would meet beneath the lake in spirit rather than continue to live apart. The anticipating evening arrived and Moon Keek rode hastily on the island, eager to get on with the plan. Through the darkness, she could see the approach of Sean Keek's canoe. But when her her happy heart skipped a beat, she saw Sean Keek slump and begin to lean overboard. Just beyond his canoe, Moon Keek spotted Nock Awando, the jealous man she had spurned, rowing past and furious with the murderous glint in his eye. The bow that sent the deadly arrow through her beloved Sean Keek's heart was at Nock Wando's side. In an instant, Monkeek pushed off the shore toward Shankeek's canoe, hoping desperately to catch him before he went under. Just as he, she reached for him, he went down. Uh, she followed him deliberately as they agreed. When the bodies of the two came to rest on the floor of the lake, their spirits resumed their mission in two empty canoes. Nakwanda was unaware of what had transpired. He had seen Moonkeek rowing gallantly toward the fatally wounded Sean Keek in the moonlight, but he never saw her go overboard. He didn't know she was dead. All he had seen was the likeliness stopping briefly at Sean Keek's canoe before continuing on toward his own canoe, but as she approached, Nakwando realized that he could see right through her eyes as she glared at him contemptuously. Then he watched in horror as the canoes rode silently away, side by side, into the mist that was settling over the lake. He turned to his camp and ra- a raving maniac. 
and for the ordeal had made him insane. He admitted his guilt to the tribe as if it would appease the two angry spirits and keep them from haunting him more than they already were. The Indians searched in vain for the bodies of the drowned couple, though they were never recovered. The lovers apparently are together in spirit as they had desired. Their apparitions, depicted in the following poem, have been also seen paddling across the lake, eternally trying to reach the other side. That poem is, But oft from the Indian hunter's camp, this lover and maid so true, are seen the hour of midnight damp, to cross the lake by fiery lamp and paddle their white canoe. Um, another one where I'd have to agree with you is who, 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 where, you know, where this story come from, who documented such things. This is another one of those things that I think are very universal. You know what I mean? This is pretty much Native American Romeo and Juliet. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, very much so. There may have been some sort of incident at some point, um, and that's sometimes when we hear a story it, coming from different sources with very very few changes. Mm-hmm. One of those sources had some element of truth to it. Now, whether it was here on this lake or somewhere else, but over time it gets embellished and it becomes a legend. And someplace else, uh, particularly if it's an oral tradition, that story is told somewhere, and somewhere a location is switched around, or the people involved are switched around. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it actually came from this location or not, I don't know, but there might have been some, uh, like I said, some element of truth, but it fell into that legends category and has spread on different forms. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, our next one up, ooh, Bigfoot, Bigfoot in Berkshire County. Okay, things are getting juicy and hairy over here now. <laughs> All right, Bigfoot sightings are more common in the northeastern United States than you might have realized. The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, BFRO, lists two interesting cases from Berkshire County that share similar characteristics, even though they happen more than 100 years apart. Um, do you believe in Bigfoot, Ray? Uh, I've got a question mark. Could there be something out there mm-hmm. that uh, we cannot explain? Uh, yeah, there are cryptoids out there, I believe, or things that we haven't discovered or can't, cannot explain. As to their location, um, I would tend to say that once you would need a massive, absolutely massive area mm. for, for them to exist in and get over the problems of inbreeding, DNA problems, food sources, and the whole time uh, a viable population to keep going on. There's a lot of those things that uh, you have to get by. Is it possible in certain areas? Yeah. I would say in certain parts of the world, yes, I saw a documentary recently about, uh, about uh, Thailand. And they have a, it is like hundreds of millions of acres of this national forest that's bigger than most states or counties in this, in this country that is just pure forest. Could yeah. there be something in there? Yes. Um, you go back about 15 years ago, there was a so-called sighting on the edge of the town I live in. Mm. 
is that likely uh, considering that we've got a highway over here and another highway over there and a shopping mall there and a few fun I don't think they could hide too well around here yeah. <laughs> no, I agree with you for sure location yeah. is key Berkshire's mm, I've, I've been up there there's some pretty uh, crazy wilderness up there in certain parts yeah yeah, it's tricky, uh, and I agree with you on that. With the, the the space, like I don't, I don't see them running around in people's backyards and stuff. Like even the Bridgewater Triangle, which really compared to like that forest you just said, is really nothing. You know what I mean? It's yeah. big, it's big, but it's like, you know, and they can pluck from farms and you know all that stuff. But yeah, it's a little too, you know, a little too much. I think for, uh, but I do think that. There are weird things out there that we don't know about. I mean, you take the ocean, for instance. We would only know what, like, 20%, 30% of the things that live in the ocean? Oh, yeah, they keep on finding things, including things they thought were extinct from a prehistoric period. Yeah. Every once in a while, pop up, and it's like, oops, we were wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It'd be interesting. Bigfoot's one of those really interesting ones, because I wouldn't be blown apart to, to find out that it was true just because... You know, there's all types of wild animals and stuff like that, and you know, almost feral type animals of, of human-like people that just live with the animals. You know what I mean? Um, that I wouldn't be surprised, but it's an interesting take. And then giants. There was a, you know, like there was a time when 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 you know, giants, not like twenty foot tall people, but like you know, fifteen foot people was like a reality and shit. You know. Um, so I can definitely believe them. And you, you live in the woods, you, you, you could possibly grow fur to adapt to stay warm, you know what I mean? Uh, human, the, humans are always evolving, you know, everything's always kind of evolving. But. Well, you, you, you bring up a good point there and that it's a possibility in evolution because people always say, oh, uh, Bigfoot's not human. Yeah. It may be a branch of humanity, which means it would have... It would have evolved differently, but it would still have intelligence, mm -hmm. avoidance of people, and the ability to survive. Yeah. It's true. Right. Back to the story. In October 18th, 1879, article in the New York Times described an apparent Bigfoot sighting on the Vermont-Massachusetts border. Uh, much excitement prevails among the sportsmen in this vicinity over the story of that wild man was seen on Friday by two young men while hunting in the mountains south of Williamstown. The young men described the creature as being about five feet high, which isn't that tall realistically, resembling a man in form and movement, but covered all, covered all over with bright red hair and having long straggling beard um, and with very wild eyes. When first seen, the creature sprang from behind a rocky cliff and started for the woods nearby. When mistaking it for a bear the other, or other wild animal, one of the men fired in it, thought, wounded uh, with the fierce cries of pain and rage. It turned on its assailants, driving them before it and at a high speed. They lost their guns and ammunition in their fight and dared not to return for fear of encountering the strange being. Uh, BFRO report 1199 describes a much more recent Bigfoot sighting by a lone individual hiking in the October Mountain State Forest uh, in Lexendale. 
in July of 1989. The sighting occurred on a well-established trail near the top of October Mountain. The witness said he spotted a far-off creature that he had first believed to be a common black bear. When he used his binoculars to get a better look, he realized that it was a very small animal with reddish hair. It was slightly stooped, and its body and head were massive. The elegant, uh, elongated face had less hair on it than the head, and it seemed to have no neck, and it looked more human than animal. The hiker could see it grubbing for food and stacking stones neatly in a pile by its side. In a moment of either great courage or great stupidity, he decided to move in for a closer look. He couldn't believe what he was seeing and wanted to be sure it wasn't some kind of hoax. It was then that he realized the arms of the beast went down past its knees, and its hands, though human in shape, were unusually large. The creature lumbered slowly back into the forest at about the same moment that the hiker had expend, uh, expended his last ounce of courage, and he made a haste for the trail. It's no wonder Bigfoot has eluded captivity so long. He scares off anyone who gets too close. Now, my take on a situation like this is, the big, he, first of all, they didn't say nothing about big feet, just big hands, so I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, like, five foot tall, I'm taller than five, I'm like, I'm, I'm five, I'm six foot four, you know what I mean? So, like, I'm more Bigfoot than that, that thing was, but I would think that that would be more in the category of, like, something feral. You gotta, I assume that back in the day, you know, uh, unfortunately, if, if somebody was born with a defect or some situation like that, you had a couple different things. You could kill it or let it off, just or kind of go abandon it somewhere in the woods in hopes of it for it to die. And I could definitely see it becoming feral at that point, you know, adapting to weather to stay warm. Maybe, well, I don't know how quick I don't know how quick a, a, a person would adapt. Actually, you know, it takes generations. I feel to start to adapt into something like that. But um, yeah, they're they're short. They're they're not not they're five feet and they're hairy. You know, I mean, I remember as a kid on TV there was a, a pair of brothers that were in the circus. I don't know if you remember this. They were like the werewolf brothers, where yeah, yeah where their faces were all hairy. So like it's a it's a, it's a legitimate medical medical condition. You know what I mean? And that's what I mean by like I, if a family way back in the day had a kid like that and they were embarrassed if you will or they were scared to keep it due to what could happen to them and the kid or you know whatever the issue may be I could see them bring it into the and they didn't have the heart to kill it I could see them bringing it into the woods and abandoning it and if it could learn to live in the woods and it had that hairy face um deformity I could definitely see that being played out the way you know it, even to play into the hands a little bit, if you were living in the woods, I think that all the work and your hands would get so rough and callous from 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 you know rocks and you know, everything that you're you're moving around and, and all that that you, you would probably your hands probably would get a little bigger than usual. Your thoughts, Ray? Um, actually, it sounds more like there are parts of Asia. I think one of them is the Philippines. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what area where their version of a Bigfoot is actually small. 
Okay. It is like four and a half, uh, five feet tall. Scientists found some fossils. From, they're still trying to decide uh, a little bit the time period and what group it's in, but it's a previously unknown uh, species, humanoid-like, and it was found in that area that uh, tops out at about five feet. Mm. So that, uh, we focus a lot on Bigfoot being like six foot, seven foot, eight foot tall. There are parts of the world where their forest creature is actually four and a half, five feet tall. So I, I'm curious because it seems to fall in that category, but I agree with you that if there was someone that was born with what was called at the time a deformity or were just plain different, mm-hmm. they might be given up. Yeah. And uh, they might themselves uh, try and escape from being uh, persecuted. And then that might explain, uh, could explain exactly what that person saw. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I always assumed Bigfoot to really be at the end of the day, instead of this old, this weird creature that, like, more of a deformity than a creature will, you know, more of a deformity than an actual separate species, you know what I mean? Yep. Okay. Next up, the Phantom Express. Ghost trains are not an unusual phenomenon. Since the first steam engine was invented, people all over the world have reported seeing or hearing mysterious locomotives that appear out of the blue and quickly vanish into thin air. Sometimes only the rumble of the approach steam engine is heard and felt. Other times nothing is seen but the headlights coming down the track, unattached to any actual train. Pittsfield once had a phantom train. According to author Joseph Citro in Passing Strange, Several eyewitnesses saw it on two separate occasions in 1958 while dining at a local restaurant. Both times the train was barreling towards Boston, and it looked so real that stunned observers could even see the coals that fuel the engine. Railway officials were deluged uh, with queries about the strange sightings and quickly conducted an investigation to determine who was guilty of the unauthorized use of their tracks. Their search was fruitless. No train, let alone an outdated steam engine like the one described in the witnesses, uh, had, e- had even been on or a particular track of the time of the sighting. If it was, a, it was a glimpse of the past, had somehow broken through the space-time barrier for a few fleeting, unforgettable moments. Maybe the ghost train was uh, Housatonic Railroad's doomed passenger train of 1865, This train was en route to Pittsfield from Bridgeport, Connecticut, when the conductor was forced to back it up because another train on the single-lane track was disabled and blocking its way. As as the ill-fated train was backing up, it collided with yet another locomotive, making an unscheduled maiden voyage from the same station. Eleven passengers died that day, and 27 were injured. Maybe nearly a hundred years after its tragic collision, the Phantom Train finally made it to Pittsfield. The Ghost Train of Pittsfield is not to be confused with the legendary Ghost Train of 1890s fame. The popular White Train, as it was officially called, was owned by a New York, uh, by New York and New England Railroad, and actually had nothing to do with the ghosts at all, except that it was as white as one. Even the crew dressed immaculately. All that decked out in white. This dazzling luxury train ran from Boston to New York City in the late 19th century, but was discontinued when it became too difficult to maintain its cleanliness. It was a remarkable sight while it lasted, though, 
as was the so-called Phantom Express of Pittsfield. Um, I don't know about that. I remember seeing a TV show back in the day. Maybe it was a Twilight Zone or a, or a new, newer, one of those new, how in the 90s they redid Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. Maybe it was one of them where they keep hearing a train coming up and they think it's going to go into the house, but like it never does. And then I think in the end of it, it like blows through the house. But, but um, yeah, you think you think if there was a big railroad collision like that with with a train, do you think that the train itself would appear in 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 like a vision or? Um, that might be created. I think it would be more residual and created by the energy of those that died. Okay. In, in the crash, uh, I know that uh, I think down south there's a bridge that went out and. Uh, there's a supposedly a ghost, ghost train that goes through there, went on a uh, through a switching station the wrong way and on a, on a bad bridge. There's several of them. Ghost trains are not that uncommon. Mm-hmm. I think that it's not just legend. I think there's the potential there that um, the energy, the trauma. It's kind of like or uh, we discussed one time a long while ago how something is it's like caught in a loop. It just mm-hmm. keeps playing it out over and over again, and we see that. Yeah, I don't, whether it's a loop or whether it's residual, we get a glimpse of what's happening. It's just playing itself out over and over again. Mm. Yeah, I believe that. Um, next up, we've got the haunted Houghton Mansion. Uh, John Witters loved Mary Houghton, the youngest daughter of North Adams first mayor Albert C. Houghton. Witters worked as the chauffeur for the Houghton family for many years in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, he was somewhat of a surrogate uncle to the Houghton children. For the three girls adored him, and the feeling was certainly mutual, but he had a particularly soft spot for Mary, whom he watched grow from infancy to womanhood. Uh, one regrettable summer day in August of 1911, the Houghton set out for Vermont for dinner. With uh, Witters at the wheel, it was a good day for a leisurely outing. Who could work? Who could work? What it was so balmy anyway. Family friend Sybil Hutton went along for the ride, and for a while everyone was enjoying a pleasant drive. But just as Mrs. Houghton had feared, the steep and perilous Pownell Center Hill, which they would have gone to go had to have gone over, was still under construction. And it was no secret that she hated that hill. She hated it with a passion. And with good reason, she would soon learn. At the top of the hill, uh, Witters was forced to go far out and around a team of horses that was hogging the road. Suddenly, the gravel shoulder of the road collapsed, sending the Houghton vehicle careening down the slope with an avalanche of dust and dirt behind it. Sybil Hutton and Mary Houghton, the love of Witters' life, died in the accident. John blamed himself. Without Mary, he didn't want to go on. Overcome by grief and guilt, he felt that his only option was to join her. Witters went down to the horse barn behind the family mansion and shot himself in the head the morning after the accident. Tragedy followed tragedy, and three years later, A.C. Houghton died from a stroke. The Lafayette uh, Greylock Masonic Lodge purchased the Houghton Mansion on Church Street in 1920. According to Nicholas Mantello, the president of the Masonic uh, Association that maintains uh, and uses the building, he and the brethren have felt the presence of an 
unsettled spirit in the lodge ever since. So often that Mentello now calls upstairs to the ghost, Good morning, or good evening, Mr. Witters, whenever he enters or leaves the building. More than one person has felt an icy chill go through past them, and phantom footsteps, not to mention slams, bangs, and creaks, have been heard by many. Mostly footsteps sounds as if they are tediously climbing the inexplicably drafty stairs to the third floor servant quarters where John Witters slept, prompting many to speculate that the heartbroken man still hasn't forgiven himself and found peace even though he joined the Hooten's family uh, burial plot. He has yet to join them in the afterlife. Mantello related the story to me about a telemarketer who was hired a few years ago to raise money for the organization. The man in charge told me that every evening after 11 or so, while he worked late in the lodge tallying each day's totals, he would get chills up his spine and get the feeling of Mr. Whiter's presence. One evening, the feeling of presence was so overwhelming that he left the lodge, leaving the lights on and door unlocked. What made the story so comical is that the man stood six feet, five inches tall, and was a good 320 pounds. He was a big man with a southern drawer and a booming voice. When he was told the story, he had to picture it in your mind. The man of a large stature running down towards stairs, out the door, priceless. As I was writing this story, Mantello had yet another run-in with the widow's ghost. The lodge had an evening event called Neighborhood Night Out. When Mantello got to the lodge that night of the event, he was telling the brethren about the draft I had shown him of this story. The two young men and the young lady overheard him. They had never heard about Witter's tragedy of the, or the ghost, and they asked if they could have a tour. Mantello agreed, and when only he and the youths were left in the building, he started telling them the story. It was thundering and lightning as they followed him through the building listening wide-eyed of the details of the accident and suicide as we were moving to the stairs and got to the third floor mr witters had his quarters where he had his quarters a noise like a pipe being scraped shot through the wall mattel told me we all stopped in our tracks like choreographed dance i turned to see the three of them with the gaping mouths where where smiles were only were only moments before they all bravely agreed to continue with the tour nonetheless when they reached Winter's room, Mantello said the thunder was coming almost simultaneously with the flashes of lightning. I felt very uneasy, like I was intruding, and, the, and suggested that we move on quickly. We did continue to explore the third floor, but noises, bangs, and thumps not associated with the storm continued to intensify, becoming louder and more frequent. It was definitely time to get out. The young trio hurried down the stairs with Mantello trailing behind, turning off light switches. He asked them, Well, do you believe in Witters now? Unanimously, they answered with a resounding yes. It was a night they surely would never forget. Mantello himself was a bit surprised at the intensity of the paranormal clattering that seemed perfectly well coordinated with his tour. He saw his captive audience to the front door, turned off the porch light and checked the lock, then turned around with a grin on his face and a shake of his head and called out to his ghostly accomplice, Good night, Mr. Winners, and good show. Um, That one right there, I mean, it seems like a realistic thing that could have happened. Um, Yeah, that's the thing with with, 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 you know... Killing himself, thinking that he might be rejoined with them in the afterlife, and then 
not really being able to, you know what I mean? I there was really no sign of of the girls being ghosts. It's almost like they passed on where he he had to stick around. Well, first off, I'd love to investigate that place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I could get in there, if we could get in there. Yeah. Um, I'd say it sounds more like he had such an attachment to them that, yeah, he didn't let go. He anchored that. He anchored himself there. Um, he's the he's the cause that he stuck there. He hasn't he hasn't let go. I mean, it was a mistake to try and follow them. Yeah. But um, I'm really curious a little bit more about his history, uh, what he was into or what he did during his life, mm. and also that place. What about that place might trap him? Was it good memories he had there? And he was waiting for them to return there because he hasn't passed over completely. There's a lot of variables in there, but it, it that sounds like one of, along with the uh, train tunnel, it sounds like one of those things that actually is in the realm of possible mm. as opposed to some of the stories that, that are passed around from location to location over time. That one's that one's a little fascinating. As I said, I'd love it, you know, if you and I and maybe a couple of others could go up there and investigate and try and see what we can find. Yeah. But it's it, yeah, it does sound like he's he's trapped there and uh he's just wandering around looking for them, waiting for them to show up. Do you think the negative energy of, a, of suicide is what kept them kept them back? Um, I would say that's a, a key element of it. Yeah. Because when when you're in that state where you're contemplating or and you commit suicide, you are kind of, things are kind of scrambled. And he did not on purpose, but inadvertently trapped himself there. He locked himself in in that emotional state, and that's where he wanders right now looking for them not realizing what he did and that he can move on because of um you know a lot of religions look down on suicide as a very negative thing you know like a sin you know i know christianity and uh it's a sin to kill yourself you think that people would be not allowed to pass on as a punishment or uh i don't i don't believe in uh, that as a punishment yeah in this in this case and i Possibly in other cases, um, I would I would tend to think that the person trapped themselves there yeah. more than anything else. Um, they're just looking. He is looking for his family, and he's not allowing himself to continue on his journey. He's just locked into looking. He, obviously, time does not pass the same on the other side, mm. so that for him, it's still the time they would have been there. And it keeps on bouncing between the, well, not bouncing, but shifting between the um, spirit world and this world, which is why we can see him as he searches for his family. Mm-hmm. I've heard in certain situations, I'm sure you have too, where some there's almost ghosts that are in good spirit where they'll play games with people. You know what I mean? Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that if if you you think that you could your your attitude could change while being dead? Like if you were to. Kill, be in a dark place and kill yourself if you would ever be in a, at some point in a, in a in a good spirit almost or would it all be sad the whole way your whole existence existence is is you know that what do you think I, I would tend to go with sad i can't, can't see how you could be trapped under those circumstances 
um, particularly if you have killed yourself after the family um, has gone and you're trying to uh, rejoin them, I can't see how at some point you're going to turn around and be playful. Well, not, to me, that doesn't make sense. You've heard of them being playful, though, right? Um, I've heard of playful spirits. Or do you think that might be almost I, trickery? There's trickery mm-hmm. um, is a definite possibility. Um, others who didn't want to pass on because they wanted to stay here. Yeah. And now that they're having fun with those that are here. Interesting. Hmm. Well... Moving on to the next story. Uh, Eunice Williams' Restless Spirit. On February 29th, 1704, Eunice Williams had just given birth to a healthy baby boy. She was still basking in the glow of having brought a new life into the world when a band of passing French and Indian Indians attacked the village of Deerfield, where she and her husband, the Reverend John Williams... Uh, not the John Williams that scores the Steven Spielberg movies, um, lived with their children. Many citizens citizens were killed right there and then, including the newborn Williams child, who was ripped out of his mother's arms and killed while the helpless and horrified parents watched. About a 100 Deerfield citizens were then herded up and taken captive. These included John and Eunice, as well as their three remaining children, all girls. They were driven in a freezing, brutal march toward Canada, and anyone not able to keep up was immediately struck down and left to die. Eunice knew she would never make it. Her body was still traumatized by childbirth, but hours, just hours earlier, as her energy waned, she whispered goodbye to her husband and prayed that he and the children would somehow survive the ordeal. Then she fell back while crossing the frigid river in Greenfield and was instantly hacked to death by the blow of a tomahawk. Her bloodied body drifted away with the current as as the marchers, each morning for their individual losses, were forced to continue on without pause. For two years, John Williams and his three daughters were held captive in Canada. When they were finally set free, one of the children, young, a young Eunice, named after her mother, refused to leave. She preferred to marry an Indian, and in so doing turned her back on her English heritage, becoming one of the savages who had murdered her mother in cold blood. This had to be more than Eunice's poor spirit could handle. It was horrible enough having her newborn child torn away from her uh, than being killed herself, but to have her own flesh and blood disregard those same things was unfathomable. People believe that Eunice's restless spirit still haunts the river, and nearby coverage, uh, cover, uh, yeah, nearby covered bridge that was later named after her. Her ghost has been seen both in the water and inside the bridge, reportedly responding to motorists who stop their engines, turn off their headlights, and honk once. So that that that's a dark story, and that go, that's that reminds me of like um, daughters that like pick out the worst people to upset their fathers and stuff. Like, that's... I'd like to know some research on that daughter, like, where her head was at. To, to It's almost like she did it because she had some weird gripe. But that's what we call um, uh, emotional problems. Girls nowadays date SoundCloud rappers. They go through shit like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, <clears throat> 
And as far as that haunting goes, one is you have a murder, and murder victims quite often come back to tell their story. Yeah. You have the, where it's added in about the betrayal from the daughter. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, this one sounds uh, a little bit more feasible that she would be there mm-hmm. uh, from the trauma of her death and what was going on in her life. Lost the child, the trauma of her death, um, the next child turns her back on the family. There's a whole emotional energy going on there that, yeah, she very well could be trapped there, uh, haunting uh, that area, both the river and the covered bridge. I can't get my head over the fact that that's like the equivalent to doing porn nowadays. You know what I mean? That's what, what, what a, that, you know, there was a gigantic buildup of madness for this poor, poor lady. And then like the ultimate slap in the face to the whole family. That daughter is really a piece of shit. In my opinion, fuck. Um, uh, she is, but she may have actually found a better life. Uh, like I mentioned before, most native tribes are matriarchal. So that you have the clan mothers, they're powerful. They can, yeah. a, a woman can divorce, a woman has property. Um, and who knows what the home life would have been in the 1700s that the daughter just said, particularly after all that trauma, no, I'm not going back. That's it. I'm not going back. I'm happy here. Get out. Leave me alone. She could have just been totally uh, turned off by the society at the time and the parents. That's a very good point. Maybe John Williams, like, diddled her or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was probably reason for the dad issues. You know what I mean? I spoke way too soon. What a, um, what a terrible way to go, though. Like, that's, you know, brutal. I've seen that in movies where, like, they... they they, they get the people and they make a march to wherever they gotta go and if they can't can't quite keep up with it they're just like they're, they're done away with that's awful that's crazy that's that's humanity for you you know what I mean well that was that was done the trail of tears to the Native Americans oh yeah yeah I'm not uh, saying yeah they were victims too I'm not trying to say that they were, they were uh, you know what I mean entirely everybody was wrong you know what I mean doing that and actually if you look at the 20th century and you look what the Japanese did uh, over in the Pacific um, I forgot the name of it but there was a march that were the prisoners the American prisoners were marched uh, no food very little water uh, either died along the way or killed along the way very few uh, made it so yeah that's uh, humanity's problem in, in the way that they treat people that uh, sort of thing has been done over and over again craziness alright we're, we're going into our last ghost story from western Massachusetts here we go it's called the face on the mountain Okay, ghosts can do some pretty impressive things but nothing compares to the giant face carved on the side of a mountain by the man for whom the mountain was named how else can a, how else can a, the uh, how else can the coincidental likeness be explained? Chief Greylock of the Haranoki tribe, and later the Misikoi tribe, lived in a secret cave on the side of a mountain, uh, in the side of Mount Greylock. In the late 1600s, he made his living by hunting, trapping animals for fur, and trading with the British, until the wild game dwindled because of the increase in local human population. So Greylock moved several times, finally settling at Mizawaki Bay, where he built Greylock's castle. 
His tribe took in many refugees from the wars, but they were forced to choose sides when war broke out between the French and the British. Greylock and his warriors aligned themselves with the French, and the chief became famous for his success in leading raids against the British well into his 60s. Though many British governors ordered his arrest, Greylock eluded capture and was never defeated. Berkshire County will never forget him. And how could they? His face now appears on the side of Mount Greylock. In 1901, a landslide on the mountain left the path called the Chief Steps on the eastern slope. Then in May 1990, a heavy rainfall that lasted for four days caused another landslide, leaving its, in its wake the, gi the giant stone face of Greylock, which now watches over the land. The old chief once valiantly fought to preserve for his tribe. What do you think of that one? Uh, hmm. That's interesting, seeing the face in the side of the mountain. I've, I've actually heard about this before. This one I've heard about, it, yeah. It could, uh, it could be an optical illusion. could be what you want to see because of the stories told about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you switch it over and if you look at a uh, an alternative is that the stones I mean people talk so much about limestone and particularly about quartz holding energies etc if uh, you have a person and a tribe that has been in that area for a long while and is connected to uh, Mother Earth and the energies are there then yes nature and Mother Earth could carve the figure or the face of that person out of the side of the mountain as a reminder to other people that they were there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, I almost feel like it's what people want to see. You know, maybe there's just a freak. There's a lot of real weird freak occurrences where things just happen to have lined up correctly um, and make things like faces or whatever you will, you know what I mean? Um, well, the, yes. the other problem the problem I have with it being the actual face of is you're talking the 1600s. Mm -hmm. So I doubt if there were many, uh, if there were any portraits. We know there weren't <laughs> any photographs. Yeah. So how do we know what he looked like? It's true. Unless we're, we're taking, oh, look at that. Looks like a big nose, and natives have big noses, or what? You know, however somebody wants to put something together and say, oh, look, that's that's the legendary person, so and so. Mm. Once that starts, then, yeah, that's what people are going to see after that. They're going to go to see that face, and they're going to be looking for the face. So they'll find it. Yeah, I agree with you 110%. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. There's uh, a lot of Native American stuff in, in our area, as we know, in Massachusetts. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, there is. I mean, people, I, I love in the paranormal shows where they go, oh, it was, uh, something was built on a Native American burial ground. Um, this whole country was Native American territory. Yeah. And despite what some people think, some anthropologists now say in North America, there were up to 20 million. Hmm. Um, I know Mohawks in the northern part had farming, um, they found traces of uh, fields of a 70, 100 acres large. This was not just a few half-naked savages running through the woods. 
there were settlements, there were people, um, burials, etc. It's all stolen land in that sense. So um, New England, like a lot of places, um, has a lot of stories uh, built around the Native Americans that were here first, that were passed down, that uh, the settlers modified stories, changed them, uh, whatever they did, or kept them intact because they just like to tell them that way. Yeah. It's crazy. I will also say that as far as this country goes, New England is old. You have very old settlements here. I know that the town I live in, there's a cemetery from the 1600s. Um, so there have been a lot of people that have come and gone, a lot of buildings that have come and gone, a lot of lives and energy and things that have happened. So the potential for something, and that's all after taking the land over from the natives, you've got a lot built up over a period of time. So the potential uh, for this place to be haunted and why we find so many stories, whether native or uh, afterwards, it kind of makes sense with that long history. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm with you. That's rounding off our... Uh... We're, 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 we we just hit the old uh, hour mark, you know what I mean? Hour and one minute. So uh, this was an interesting take on that. We gotta, we'll probably do a couple more episodes um, with the other areas in Massachusetts. We'll see how this one played out. It seemed like it went pretty good, even when the stories weren't that fantastic. We we had some decent input for them, make some jokes, you know, kinda. Kind of way out. Uh, it's good. It's good to kind of you know be able to nay or yay things, you know. Yeah. And there's a lot of yang and nang to be had, especially with the paranormal. You know, I think the there we got a little old wivesy tale in there. I'm hoping that the book has a little more, um, a little more meat to it. When we got into that Bigfoot thing, I thought it was going to have some meat. The Bigfoot one is probably my favorite of what we just heard. Which one was your favorite, you think? Uh, I enjoyed the Bigfoot one. Yeah. Um, the guy who committed suicide looking for his family, uh, the second to last one. The mansion, that one yeah. I, The mansion, that one I, I, like I said, I'd love to go into that mansion to see what's mm. going on. Just yeah. as I would be, cur- I'd be curious about the tunnel to see what's residual and what may be real there. Yeah. So it's, a couple of them got me interested there. As a hmm, like to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, I'll see if I can. Uh, I think it was Pittsfield. So I'll see if I can find any other. Go back. One of them had an address, but uh, uh, God knows if if it. Well, the book was in 2005. The house might not even be there anymore. Yeah. It might not even have been there when the book came out. But, yeah. So we're, we're diving back into the haunted world of Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. But this will keep us going. This is good. This is good filler, I think. Not filler, but, like, this will be good for... Uh, to get back into the ghostly things and to address some situations that are supposedly ghostly and uh, 
if uh, we, we can jive on it and you know speak whether or not we think it's real or fake or you know add to it or you know question it. You know. Yep. Cool. All right, Ray. A pleasure. A pleasure as always. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you. Absolutely. We want to thank everybody for listening. Hope everybody's doing good out there in quarantine world. Staying safe, staying healthy, staying alert. Uh, just keeping keeping up with everything, you know. But we'll we'll catch y'all in the next episode of Mostly Ghosted. <laughs>